Welcome to the Chapter 49 podcast. Today is March the 16th. It's a Wednesday. We're recording just a little bit earlier than we normally do in the week just to fit uh, our schedules this week. But we welcome you to our podcast. Very, very glad that you've uh, chosen to join us. Hope you'll... you'll uh, if you like this podcast, we'll let others know. We'll tell you later on in the podcast uh, how to go about finding it. I'm sure you've already found it, but sometimes uh, forwarding it and letting other people know gets a little more complicated. So we'll say more about that. Uh, as we speak to our chapter president here for Chapter 49, Duncan Giles, always good to see Duncan Giles on a beautiful spring day and a good good day to you. Good morning or slash good afternoon, Larry. It's close to both. Yeah, we're midday is our recording session today, which is a little different than we normally do. But again, we're just trying to work around everybody's schedule to get this done. We try to to get these podcasts done uh, once a week, and to get that done this week uh, today was was the best day to do it. And you know, Indiana is known for its weather changing rather quickly, and March is one of those. Uh, transition months where you can see a blizzard or you can see a 70 degree day, but today's a good day that we can be thankful for that. Yeah. That's like, we like to say, you know, like Indiana weather, wait 15 minutes, it'll change. Yeah. That's what we tell people during the Indianapolis 500 and it still starts to rain and continues to rain. <laughs> <Some Yeah. years. laughs> but hopefully actually in recent years, we've had a little bit better weather than we've had in the past, but there have been some tough years weather wise. But uh, with the weather, I know people watch and listen from all over, so we hope you are experiencing good weather wherever you may be watching or listening this podcast to this podcast. We're going to open up with an issue that dovetails something that Duncan and I have talked about for many weeks now. The Commissioner of Internal Revenue, the top management, everyone has been telling NTEU, telling their own employees and various communications that the this whole return to work, return to, oh, not to return to work, we're all been working, but return to office, the uh, taking away of the order that allows people to work from home almost all the time or all the time in some cases. That evacuation order, we've been told, would be removed with 30 days notice. That was one of those promises that came down from the highest management tiers, if you will. Something happened just the other day. Duncan, tell us what happened. Yeah, we caught word of some folks in our facilities, FMSS, that were being told that they're going to have to return to office at the end of March for at least two to three days uh, a week to basically handle new hires, people coming back, things of that nature. This absolutely flies in the face of the 30-day notice that the commissioner has uh, sent out on numerous emails. And it's almost like, okay, we're going to be doing this unless it's not convenient for us, which is a bunch of horse crap. It's sort of like being a little bit pregnant. You either are or you aren't. You either give your word and give employees 30 days notice or not. If it's not convenient, I'm sorry, that's on you. This is something that should be pretty basic. And I'm speaking for myself. I'm not speaking for National NTU or anybody else. I'm speaking for myself when I say that how can we trust 
the words coming out of any upper level management's mouth when they can just change it for their convenience. And this happens so often. And this one is a pretty easy, would have been a pretty easy fix, but yet they've chosen to ignore it. And it just infuriates me, to be honest. Well, here's the thing that concerns me, because when you're in a position of power or management, a decision-making job, to me, the most important thing that you have beyond the institutional authority you have is your credibility. Do I mean what I say when I make a promise? Do I follow through on that promise? Now, my last four years at the IRS, I served as a group manager. And the one thing I always tried to do was if I made a commitment to my group, I made sure I fulfilled that commitment. And if something happened where I couldn't, I made it very clear why that was the case and how I was going to find a way to, to, to take care of it in some other way. So uh, I do believe when you're in management, especially at that level at the IRS, at the very highest levels, you know, credibility is everything. And Duncan, I would have to say, just based on what you have shared with me and what you've just said, IRS management, I mean, you, you, I know you have said you've had other situations. This particular one would take a tremendous hit to their credibility, I think. It would have to. And even if the commissioner's office was not responsible for allowing this or, you know, said they didn't know, things of that nature, the buck stops with them. You know, something happens with the Chapter 49 or for other leaders, chapter leaders across the country, the buck stops with that particular leader. So you're responsible. You're responsible for the actions that your people take if you don't correct it. And from what we're hearing, it's not going to be corrected. Now, NTU, National NTU and IRS have been uh, talking, if not negotiating, for several weeks over how uh, the return to office was going to be done. But nothing has been finalized. And certainly there has been no date. We, you know, we heard Ken Moffat on a previous podcast talk about it's going to be done in phases. But again, no date has been given for return to office. And yet all of a sudden facilities on their own in a particular area says, okay, we're going to have our own date. And that just undermines the credibility of every single high level IRS official to me. And I'm sure to many others. You know, Duncan, my very first job with IRS in 1983, was working in facilities. It was then part of what was called resource management. It was done at the local district level in those days, much different organization now. But the work they're doing isn't that much different. Facilities management is the backbone of how IRS is able to get its work done. Um, so I understand re that you know facilities people have a very special responsibility and I think what I'm hearing is that the management saying, you know, we need to have these people working in the office so others can uh, be in the office later on. But, okay, I get that. But on the other hand, you've made a pretty important promise. Why can't you put the 30-day notice, start the facilities people, and phase others in? I, I just don't understand um, the gravity of this or what, what, why it has to be done now. I, I understand that this will maybe help the management, but you know, I think on the other hand, when you when you really hurt your credibility to the extent you have, I don't see how that could be justified just by bringing people in earlier than you originally promised. So that's 
that's my comment, and I'll let you make a final comment on this before we move on. Yeah, it's one of those things where, okay, facilities has done this. What's to stop now from accounts management seeing this and saying, you know what? We think we, our folks need to be back in the building in two weeks. What's to stop Taz from saying, hey, you know what? You advocates, we need you in the office next week. You know, this is all, you know, I want to use some stronger words, but malarkey. I Believe me, I want to use much stronger words than that. Um, but it's just something that this was a commitment that the commissioner gave to the employees. There would be at least 30 days notice before you have to return to the office. Now we have no idea whether that's going to be reinstated. Is it going to be like Taffy and just, you know, be able to bend it around for whatever purpose you need? It just boggles the mind that something so simple and it could have been done in a very simple manner a couple of weeks ago to do this has not been done and so you've basically taken a not just a shotgun to shoot yourself in the foot but a howitzer to uh your credibility and so okay we can't believe you on that how can we believe you on anything else well, let's move on to another subject. I think we've we've we've, on, we've set our piece on that. Uh, one part of the bargaining that happened for the national agreement, of which you and uh, were there for the entire bargaining session, beginning to end all sessions, I should say. One I think really important uh, breakthrough was in the area of of childcare subsidies. Other agencies have this. Uh, the IRS negotiated this, agreed to do this, but yet we're many months after the contract has been ratified and we, there's still no child care subsidy available. What's going on there, Duncan? Yeah, this has gotten so bad that national NTU has had to file a, uh, a grievance over this just because of the fact that it hasn't started happening. And do I think that the IRS has tried to deliberately stall doing this? No, I don't. I think it's just, they picked the wrong vendor and that vendor is not able to deliver on the promises that they've made. So we're way behind. And this is something, you know, we've got pretty good inflation. Gas is going up. Commodities are going up. Folks at the level that we were aiming for could really use this help for childcare, especially if they're going to be made to return to the office. So we need to get this fixed and we need to get these, this vendor lined up. And for them to start doing what their contractually uh, award is and get this fixed now so these folks can get some relief and get this done. It's a great program, both NTU, who recommended it, and the IRS, who heartily accepted it at the table. Uh, it's in their best interest to do this, and it's a great recruiting tool. But if you can't get it implemented, it doesn't, all the good intentions in the world don't matter. Uh, a thing. It needs to be done now and taken care of. Yes, and I know uh, Ken Moffat, your uh, chief of negotiations mm -hmm. in Washington for NTEU, was the one who who came up with this proposal. And, uh, and I think it's reasonable because so many other agencies have it. 
I'm trying to remember, I think it's the VA, that they not only have had one for a while, their most recent contract enhanced the value of that. So we're just getting started and can't seem to find a way to start. So that is something that uh, we will continue to look. Even though there are some income limits on it, there'll be a number of IRS employees who would be able to take advantage of that. You know, Duncan, you know who I thought of when you talked, uh, when you used the word malarkey, I thought about President Biden. President <laughs> President Biden, uh, just the day before we record this, which was uh, March 15th, uh, did sign the budget bill into law. He had said he was going to do it. It was not only agency budgets such as ours in there. There was Ukrainian help in there financially. So there was a lot of incentive to get that done. And, uh, you know, I, I want to just repeat something we said on the previous podcast. This is something we all need to keep in mind. This is a landmark budget for IRS, the largest budget increase we have seen in 20 years, an increase in enforcement, an increase in services, even some increase in support services like in computer technology. Where IRS, when I started with the IRS in the 80s, people talked about how IRS was ahead of the curve on technology. We haven't been there since then. We've been behind the curve, way behind the curve. So at this particular point, I just want to mention to people just how hard this was to do. Our legislative department, all the members who contacted their members of Congress and their senators, uh, you've made a difference, and uh, this was a hard fight, and uh, every budget year is going to be a difficult fight. But uh, I think uh, this was a win for all of us, and I just wanted to make that point uh, now that that uh, budget bill has been signed into law. Absolutely, yeah. They had signed the short-term uh, continuing resolution to cover the agencies for a couple of days until the president signed it yesterday. And as you mentioned, this gives a quite an increase for the Internal Revenue Service to be able to do some more hiring, to work on that shortfall in the service centers, to get more people on the phones, to get more people to be able to do audits, collect taxes, help the taxpayers and taxpayer advocate. So across the board, we should be seeing uh, you know, the ability to hire in greater numbers. Now, whether that will translate into people actually wanting to work for the service and coming to work for the service, that's a whole nother thing. But we've got the ability to go out and do more hiring and improve our, uh, as you said, our technology, our information technology. Because, yeah, we have not been a government leader in technology. Uh, I've been here over 27 years, and we've not been the leader since then. I can tell you that. Um, and, you know, hopefully it improve it some so it can improve it for the employees, improve it for the access for the taxpayers so the taxpayers can get an accurate read on what their records are, what they show, um, how it's going for them. So we could do things like reduce phone calls. You know, it, it'd be a win for everybody. You know, Duncan, this ties in with uh, our discussion just a few minutes ago about the contract and the budget. The uh, service centers or campuses, however you want to describe them, there are three of them in Kansas City, the biggest of, of all for paper processing, and Austin where the, they're, they're keeping the paper processing longer than expected, and Ogden, Utah. They're all having job fairs. We talked about this before. And in the agreement that was reached with management, management wanted 
uh, what they consider to be a more streamlined system for hiring. They're going to try to use that with uh, these people who are coming in to work the uh, paper processing. Some of these are very lower graded jobs. So you and I have talked about just the fact you mentioned uh, how many people in these cities like Kansas City, Austin, and Ogden are going to show up for a job fair and be interested in a, in jobs at that low a grade, even though there's some benefits there. Um, you still have not as much money to, to be competitive. And you mentioned we still, uh, the president, I say we, the, the government, now has a $15 an hour minimum wage. But that's even that, considering that, is, is going to be a hard sell for some people uh, to come to work for IRS in these paper processing centers. So talk about this whole direct hire system. It is a new system now. Yeah, one of the things that we had a lot of discussion on in the national negotiations was over the hiring and the fact that it takes, as any of us know, it takes forever to go from job application to hiring. So one of the things that we were working on was making sure that there could be a, uh, a simpler process, especially for entry-level jobs, for folks coming into submission processing, for folks coming into accounts management. The jobs that are always looked at as a springboard into possible other careers in the IRS. These are the entry-level jobs that, uh, that all of us were wanting to make sure that we could get more people into in a faster uh, measure. And in addition to the uh, things that we came up with at the table, then they went to, IRS went to um, OPM, Office of Personnel Management, to get direct hire authority to make it even faster. Now, there were some uh, hoops that had to be jumped through and discussions with NTU, National NTU, to do this. But that was solved very quickly using the basis of the contract that we negotiated last summer. So the agency now has the ability to hire these folks at a much quicker rate and hopefully get quicker responses to them. The, the burning question is, though, the definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over again and expecting a different result. We're, yeah, we are hiring at $15 an hour. That's a good thing. But so is the fast food place down the block, and they're probably hiring at greater rates than $15 an hour. They're hiring permanent. We're still hiring a lot, not all, but a lot as seasonal. And, you know, people look at those things. They don't tend to take a look at some of the benefits that we have that other companies might not have. Uh, the leave, the, you know, the insurance benefits, things of that nature. So I'm, I'm really hoping that we can do some good with this direct hire, but I'm not holding my breath. Talk about money in a different way. Um, I During my IRS career, I, I know that there are a number of people who maybe wanted to be managers, analysts. Uh, there are various jobs that uh, for which you can be detailed into. Uh, I was detailed into jobs that were always within the bargaining unit in my case. But, for instance, if you wanted to be a manager during tax season, there was what they used to call expansion managers where you would – uh, be de not be detailed, but you would actually work in a different job, a management job, then go back to the bargaining unit once uh, the filing season was over. So there were many cases where people would go into the non-bargaining unit. There are some situations where people have to take leave without pay. It's often through circumstances beyond your control. 
and you just have to be off work and, and the management will approve leave without pay in situations where it's just something you cannot control. There's a downside to that on the awards program. Explain how that works, Duncan. Absolutely. Yeah, that's one of those things that people seem to get surprised at every year. We try and get information out, but it still seems to be a surprise. If you are in either a leave without pay uh, position for a great deal of time or in a non-bargaining position, be it an acting manager, high-level analyst, something of that nature, and it um, let's say that you're in this position for you know, 12 weeks or so, well, that could constitute 25% of your time. And if that's 25%, your awards, if you're getting an award, will be reduced by that amount. An award can be reduced by 25%, 50%, or 75%, depending upon how long of a time period, 25, 50, or 75%, that you were in either a non-pay status or in a non-bargaining unit pay status. So that's something I always talk to people when they're talking about short-term details, couple of weeks, you know, two weeks, four weeks, not a big deal unless you start piling those up or you're saying, okay, I'm going to take the six month detail. Well, that could absolutely impact your uh, award amount. Now, is it better to get the experience as a manager and the higher pay as a manager versus the award? It may be, but I always like to make sure people have all the information they can to make an intelligent decision when they're going to do that. Yeah, I think you're, you're right. And, uh, if you are leaving the bargaining unit, any award that you get that's not tied to our contract, which are for bargaining unit employees, you're basically at the mercy of the management. Having been a manager and seeing that awards program, trust me, your contract is much better. <laughs> okay, that's all I'll say about that. And there may be instances where people actually do get awards uh, in the non-bargaining area, but uh, wouldn't count on it. One thing that's happening uh, for people who are planning for retirement um, that I think is, is, is something we, we should talk about here, that we've talked about the Thrift Savings Plan being one of the most successful government programs to help people with their retirement, really one of the most successful government programs overall. And there will be some big changes coming up in the TSP in the coming months. And the biggest one, I think you've talked about one where you'll have a phone app where you can access uh, your account. That did not exist before. But another one is that there will be more um, options for your retirement savings. What do we know about this? Yeah, that's that's one of the things that I'm very glad the, uh, the TSP, the Thrift Savings Plan, has listened to the folks who have their money there. The Thrift Savings Plan happens to be, to me, to be a great, great benefit for federal employees. Not only do you get the match up to 5% of your uh, contribution, so as I always tell people, make sure that you're contributing at least 5%, because I don't know anywhere else where you're going to get a guaranteed 100% return on your money. But it's also got some of the lowest, if not the lowest, administrative costs out there versus any other fund. And I'm not trying to sell TSP or anything like that. I'm just stating facts. The problem with TSP has been the lack of different funds that people can invest in and the flexibilities that they have. And this has been one of the reasons that people pull their money out of the thrift savings plan once they retire, because they want to have 
more versatility, be able to do more things with their money. Um, and Thrift Savings has uh, listened to that. The Congress has uh, passed some statutes to give them some leeway in doing that. And they are making these changes. So there should be more funds and more ways to get to your money um, once you retire and once you're while you're working to invest in different things, that it'll make it something that'll be uh, more worthwhile for folks even after you retire. I think one important uh, quote that really tells the whole tale there's a uh, one of the lowest costs as far as fees of uh, um, mutual funds out there available is Vanguard, and they've been around for years. The man who started Vanguard and ran it for years is a man by the name of John Bogle. Someone asked John Bogle once, what do you think of the thrift savings plan? And his answer is, I only have one problem with the thrift savings plan. I can't get into it. <laughs> so, you know, he knew his company couldn't beat the thrift savings plan for low fees. So when you invest in thrift savings, I mean, you can also invest elsewhere. Don't get me wrong. There are options out there. But even John Bogle, who invented the low-cost, low-fee low kind of uh, investment vehicle in the private sector, had to admit he can't beat the TSP. So I think you're right. Uh, just listen to that, and you, you've got the, uh, all the verification you need that uh, we, we uh, federal employees, and I've had my thrift savings plan well, I worked, and it has been a big help to me uh, in my retirement. So I can just sort of give you a, a heads up on that. I want to ask you about one last thing here. Uh, we did post this on our, our NTEU 49 Indiana Facebook page. There's a very well-known management uh, consultant on workforce issues. His name is Howard Risher. He wrote an article that was put uh, on a website that has a lot of information for government employees. It's called govexec.com. It's uh, the web version of Government Executive Magazine. And he wrote an article I found rather compelling. It's all about how an organization can only work at the highest level when that organization empowers its own employees. Doug, and you have been involved in a number of joint union management projects with empowerment at least at the core or part of of what your task was so you've been through this drill more than once what's your analysis of irs and its ability to empower its own employees the irs at times has very noble visions of wanting to empower their employees but when it comes to execution it seems like most of the time they want to execute that idea uh, there are always going to be certain levels of management that are very afraid of empowering their employees. I go back to a quote by Charles Rosati that I absolutely love. Charles Rosati was a uh, IRS commissioner in the mid-1990s to, I think, early 2000. Um, and he was his quote is, I'd rather be roughly right than precisely wrong. And I love that quote by saying, you know, if we empower our employees, if we give them the opportunity to make these small changes, I'm not talking about changing statutes, but doing things that make a lot more sense on the ground than they do in a policy meeting or ivory tower or something like that, it can really be beneficial. Not only does it help uh, smooth out how you do the job, 
but it helps employee engagement to know that they're being able to make these changes, that they're empowered to do these things, that they're empowered to make decisions that can uh, help taxpayers, help the organization, things of that nature. So I'm a huge, huge believer in always empowering employees and giving them the opportunity to do these things. Uh, so I think he's spot on. And I think at the highest levels, and um, do I think the commissioner wants to empower employees? Absolutely. Do I think people below him want to empower employees? I think that's an extremely mixed bag because some of them are very frightened of that prospect because there are still too many management officials, high-level management officials who want to have you know, that control and they're scared of losing that control. But if you empower employees to make decisions, and sometimes there are going to be mistakes, that happens. Rather be roughly right than precisely wrong. Overall, it's going to work out much, much better for you than if you just don't allow any innovation whatsoever. And I learned that as a manager. You know, if you're willing to delegate some duties to your own employees, they can grow. And yes, they're going to make mistakes, but that's part of learning. And as a manager, you have to be willing to, to own that. And I think what you're saying is uh, some people in the, ch the chain just don't want to own those errors. And that's a sad thing to see. But, you know, you hope that as things continue, that uh, empowerment will still be something that people at IRS are willing to try. Well, we've, we're a little over our 30 minutes. Uh, final comment from Duncan Giles. Um, I just wanted to talk about just for a moment. Um, two things real quick. One is, uh, you know, COVID is still out there, folks. So I would strongly urge you to get vaccinated, to get boosters, things of that nature. It's still out there. Believe me, it's not over. So I, I want everybody to be healthy. The second thing is, is just this morning, uh, the president of Ukraine gave an address to a joint session of Congress. These folks are at the core of battling for democracy. This is what it's all about. You know, they are battling a repressive regime that wants to take them over and install a puppet government. That's plain, pure, and simple. If you have a different opinion of that, I'm sorry. I'm just stating fact. These folks are defending their country, and I can't, you know, I, I can't support them enough in the in the struggle that they're doing. And I just wish them all the best. And I you know, hope it ends as soon as possible to, you know, end the bloodshed for both sides. And again, I, I think we have to look at history here. Just look at the 20th century on. If you look at what Ukraine has been through, Ukraine was part of the Soviet Union, dealt with the Stalinist era, which was not pleasant to live under. They were occupied for the Nazi, by the Nazis for a period in World War II. Uh, they then were able to get their independence uh, through a, a, a protest by the people who lived there, and they threw out a president who was pro-Russian and elected uh, their own people who were not tied to Russia necessarily. And uh, they have had a taste of what real democracy is like, and they like that and to the extent that they're willing to take up arms and defend it. Just an amazing story, Duncan. I think you, you, I think you spelled it out pretty well yourself. And to dovetail your COVID comment, I just saw a story just before we, we started recording this. The World Health Organization says that globally, COVID cases are up 8%. 
Now, where I live, it's way down. Where a lot of people listening to this live, I'm sure, watching this, um, the, the COVID levels are down. But they're still around. Now, we're better prepared for COVID. I'm seeing an awful lot of public health experts saying, look out for the fall. We could be in for another influx of cases in the fall. The good news is we have vaccines. We do have uh, medicines in the works to treat people once they get it. But not all, But the, the medicines aren't all ready at this point. So uh, just remember that uh, even though we, we've loosened the standards, the CDC has changed their standards uh, a little bit of care is something we all need to keep in the back of our minds. And, and Duncan and I have said this before. If you haven't been vaccinated, please do that. That's the best protection you can have. So, Duncan Giles, thank you very much uh, for joining us as usual. We'll be back, if all goes well, sometime next week with the next edition of the Chapter 49 podcast. And you know, who knows what will happen between now and next week. But whatever happens, Duncan and I will be prepared to talk about it. Again, if you watch and listen to this podcast, feel free to share it with other people who might enjoy listening and watching it. It's on YouTube. Just go to Duncan Giles. There's more than one. Just look at the one that has the Chapter 49 uh, video podcast in his area there, and you can subscribe if you like and be notified every time we have a new podcast. Same thing for audio. You can get our audio podcast on just about any platform where you get podcasts. All you have to do is uh, look under Podcasts by Larry Lannan, L-A-N-N-A-N, and feel free to take those links and share them with others. Once again, thank you for watching and listening. Please be safe and be kind. Be kind.